Magic Book Club podcast. Hello, it's Tom Price here. You are listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. Joining me this month, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome along a, a prolific author who has had an enormous amount of success and has now made me scared of elevators for life. It's Mr. Linwood Barclay. Hello, sir. Hello, great to be here. Thanks for coming. And as we were just discussing off air, the lift is broken down in this building right now because everyone in the building is now scared of elevators because of you. Well, I'm grateful that given that it was broken, you're not on the, like, the 45th floor. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Be, I couldn't handle that. Well, I mean, that happens to some of the characters in the book. I mean, let's not, let's not do yeah, any spoilers yeah. oh, here. that's true, yeah, yeah. But you do make your characters sweat quite literally in this book. Yeah, well, that's, you know, they, and they can't get even with me because they're not real, so that <laughs> all works out really well. Just do whatever you want to these people. Do you have that feeling, some writers I've spoken to uh, have this thing where the, the, the characters in their book, because you say they're not real, the characters in their book... They, they told me to do that. Almost like they've become real in your head and they tell you what they want to do. Or do you always feel like you're God and you're in control of them? I'm in charge. I just, I don't, you know, I, I do think though that there's some truth to the fact that you can start writing something and you start to see potential in a character that you didn't know that was there when you started. You think, this character's kind of taken over. They're kind of doing some really cool stuff. So you just go with that. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but no, I'm the, uh, I'm the, I'm the God okay. in the book. So I can, just, this, I can do what I want to these people. And you're a very cruel gods. So yes, we yes. Sh- we should explain. Give give us. I mean, give us the elevator pitch for elevator pitch. But what's the what's the basic premise we're looking at here, Linwood? Yeah, it's kind of you know it's it's kind of reminds me of the remember that Seinfeld episode where he did a coffee table book on coffee tables. This is kind of the the elevator equivalent of that. The elevator pitch for elevator pitch is about a kind of different kind of serial killer in Manhattan who is sabotaging elevators. That's how he's you know offing his uh, getting rid of his victims. And uh, and of course it's. In a city like New York, which is so vertical, um, if it reaches the point where the, everyone in the town realizes it's not safe to take an elevator, that's pretty much brings the city to a halt. Yeah. And uh, so that's the premise, I mean, in a nutshell. And you've got uh, two, two uh, police detectives who are trying to figure out who's doing that, as well as a, uh, a political journalist who covers New York politics who's mm-hmm. also become involved trying to figure out, is this random or is there some reason why these things are happening? And is it the first time we're meeting these characters or these guys we've met before in your books? No, this is all complete standalone. We haven't met any of these people before. And are we going to meet them again after this? I don't book? know. Um, not, I like Carla. I like Carla. Big fan. That's not not not, um, not soon. I don't think they might come back sometime. I have I have sometimes written a book where I've gone back and grabbed a character from a few books ago and brought them back. So you never know. Must be so much fun shuffling people around like that. Yeah, a lot funny. of them are just sitting in that book saying, "Can we come out again? <laughs> Can we do something?" <laughs> Can it be not as awful as last time? It was horrendous. So this is, this elevator thing is a fascinating thing that you've picked up on. You, you've uh, you've pulled a thread which is which is there for us all to see. But it had never occurred to me how important elevators are. I mean, this is someone living in London. Elevators are important to us. But in somewhere like New York, where this is set, yeah. everyone's yeah, they, up. Everyone's up. Well, you know what? It's kind of like I, when I set out to do this, I thought, well, I want to do for elevators what Psycho did for showers, mm. and you know, take something that we that so many of us use every single day without even thinking about it, yes, and turn it into something that you're scared to death of. <laughs> and and uh, and what I discovered, particularly, like, I don't really have particularly have an, an elevator phobia, but I don't mind exploiting the phobias of others. And and I found that elevators present a kind of intersection of anxieties. There's there's claustrophobia. There's fear of heights. There's fear of falling. There's loss of control, and and also just sometimes being packed into a tight space with all sorts of strangers. So you have all of these anxieties come together in that box. Yeah. Thanks for really highlighting that to me. I, I, I'm, I genuinely mean it. I've already got enough anxieties, Limit. I didn't need any more. You're welcome. 
very much found myself. It was either here, it was somewhere nearby. I was in an elevator when I was reading this book, and I thought, why am I? My palms are sweating. It's because I was reading in the middle of the book when it happened, and it, it's that way of also the potential. Um, I won't say violence, but when you are that high up, you, you forget that when you're in the elevator, and yet the impact if you if you fail is is huge. As we oh, discovered, yes. people become jam basically. Yeah, and it's fact, I, I you know what when I was you know reading up on this before I wrote it, and and people think, well, what do you do? If you're in a plunging elevator, yeah, do you jump at the end? That's what people think. Oh, yeah. if I just jump at the end, as yeah. if you know when the end's coming, which of course you don't. Oh, that's a good point. And and even if you did jump, it wouldn't make any difference at all somehow because it's not like you know you're still going to come back down. And and um, they say that really, if you are in a plunging elevator, the the thing to do is to distribute your body weight as as broadly as possible. So lie on the floor of an elevator and stretch your arms and legs out, right. which is really great advice. Unless the elevator has like twenty five people in it, in which case you might as well all just kiss it all goodbye. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so hang on. So so when you but when you're falling down because you are in the sort of the physics of this is that you are stuck in that elevator, so you can't take a little jump because you already got the yeah. You're still going impossible. down. Yeah. You no, know, you're 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 plunging at an immense rate of speed oh. and so you jump up for half a second you're still going down mm. you know it's so it's not going to help and the scene with the little kid as well the kid who ends up i should say not any spoilers but the kid's fine in this the kid it's is, not that cruel a book the kid is fine but it's fine and and no <laughs> and no and no animals were harmed, no animals were harmed in the production of this novel you have a you have a cru- in fact that's one of the words i've written down this is what i do whenever i read these books for this uh, podcast i write down keywords i've written chaos because I think I love the, I love the fact that this thin veneer in cities, especially between order and chaos, and, and elevators coming out suddenly chaos can erupt. Yeah, and yet you know there's a point later in the book when when this this chaos is kind of fully going on, and our our journalist Barbara is uh, heading down the street, and what she observes is not sort of people in panic, but she sees people standing at sidewalks and having a drink and in cafes and hanging around the front of bars and so forth. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter what you throw at New Yorkers, they just carry on. Yes. And so even though there is this pandemonium, there's sort of, at, at some other level, it's like, oh, well, we'll get through this. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but they need to get through it sooner rather than later. But the unforeseen consequences of the elevators all breaking down is fascinating. The way that everyone ends up on the streets, you're right, because they can't go home because everyone lives up on the 43rd floor. Well, and suppose suppose it happens, you know, word gets out that it's not safe to use the elevator and you're up on the 50th floor. Mm. So you think, I'd better not go. I mean, I could take the stairs down. It will take a while. But then what if they don't get this all sorted out before I have to come back? Yeah. Because, you know, it's slightly more troubling going upstairs than it is going down. And so... So if you're already up there, you're afraid to leave. And if you're on the bottom floor when this happens and you live on the 50th, what are you supposed to do? You yeah, know, you how long? So, fascinating. And of course, businesses, I mean, so much of commerce, all the businesses are all in these massive skyscrapers. Are people going to go to work? Are oh. they going to stay? What are they going to do? And uh, so it's it creates a considerable amount of pandemonium. The and, other of course, thing- and then, of course, you have... Then of course it's, uh, you have all the all the moronic pundits on all news, you know, stations and so forth, uh, and making it worse, making as it always. worse, and of course yeah. saying, of course, it's all a mass conspiracy to make people more fit. <laughs> what is that thing that there's always someone giving a conspiracy read on any event that oh, sure. happens? Anything that happens, someone will say, "Wow, this is what I've done." I know, and you look at, and and all you have to do is look at our leaders and think, 
Are any of them smart enough to pull off a conspiracy of that nature? And I think the answer is so obviously no. Indeed, indeed. There is, let's, let's not get into British news, but that is incredibly pertinent <laughs> know, to what's going just, on at the moment. I, I was saying just the other day, I, said, I picked such a perfect time to come over mm. from Canada for a book tour because there's nothing going on here. It's all very <laughs> quiet. <you know? laughs> they seem to have closed Parliament and the borders. Uh-oh. <laughs> let's move on from that. Um, the other word I've written in big block capitals, wealth. I loved how... Um, the people who live at the top of these buildings tend to be wealthier, right? Because they've got the penthouse suites and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So this hits people who are wealthier, which I find very interesting. And then the final word I've got is cruelty. Yes. You're Linwood. You look very nice. You seem like a nice man so far. We're only ten minutes into this, and I've read your other. I've read several of your other books. You're a cruel man. You've got a horrible brain. I'm a sadistic, evil person <laughs> at heart. I'm nice. Like I said, I'm nice to dogs. And, uh, that's the most and important so, thing. So I think that's I think that says a lot for my character. But but and I'm generally f- uh, reasonably polite to real people, and I hold doors open for them and so forth. But when it comes to the characters in the pages of my book, uh, they they really haven't got a chance. Yeah, yeah. And there's cruelty in things like the the um, the mayor's challenge at the end. Let's not do any spoilers. But that's, that's yeah. he- heinous what you've done there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mayor's a bit of a. Uh, uh, I can't use that word. Um, oh no, do by, of, by all means. He's a bit. Well, he's a it's bit fun. of a, certainly a bit of a jerk, and uh, he's, he does kind of redeem himself slightly at some point. Yes, but um, but yeah, these people are put through a fair bit in this book. Mm. I mean, not a lot of people very individually and a kind of city as a whole. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. go through an awful lot. Do you find it purges you psychologically? Do you feel cleansed by other people, well, fictional people going through? Pain? I think what's really good for just the safety and benefit of society is that I can get out these impulses through writing. Because if I couldn't write, God knows what I might do. You know, like nobody would be safe. But I can have this outlet for all these anxieties or perhaps anger or all these sort of things. I have this so at least that that, Mm. uh, the public is safe. Would it be too meta for a future Linwood Barclay book to feature a writer who can no longer write and has to suddenly take out these awful things? That's a great idea. I mean, do you want to have that? That's a great idea. A lot of people... Well, the first person that comes to mind who's written great books about writers is and thrillers and so forth is Stephen King. I mean, Mm -hmm. think of Misery. Yeah. That's just the ult- that is the ultimate writer dilemma book. It's is, brilliant, is isn't that it? one? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed, indeed. Well, actually, let's talk about Stephen King. Let's talk about other authors. Who inspires you, Linwood? Who do you who do you read when you're on writing downtime? I read a great many people, and, and a lot of people who I think are just so fantastically talented that when I read them, I think, boy, am I glad you don't have to be this good to get published. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, so I mean, I think my all time favorite writer ever when I was. Um, in my teens and 20s was a, a U.S. crime writer by the name of Ross MacDonald who wrote the Lou Archer novels. I've never read Ross MacDonald. Well, I'm writing that down, Ross MacDonald. I mean, he hasn't been with us. He passed away in the early 80s. But okay. he was kind of, at the time, considered the heir to the throne that was the Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, and then Ross MacDonald. Mm. He's not as well known now, which is too bad, but he was hugely inspirational to me at that age. And I think now, today, I, I think... The, the the aforementioned Mr. King is probably my favorite. He's the one I'm most kind of in awe of because of his prodigious output and the fact that at this stage in his career he's turning out really ambitious works. Yeah, the and, Mercedes trilogy was brilliant. Oh yeah, and the book that's this just out the institute. I had was lucky enough to read that a couple months ago, and I thought I think it's one of his best. It's incredible that he's still doing that, isn't it? And I know. I'm just I'm astounded. Yeah. I really am. Quantity and quality. Yeah. How dare you, Stephen King? <laughs> um, okay, so but Stephen King, very nice, very nice. And let's talk a bit about your childhood because um, I'm reading here that you, you grew up on a holiday camping park. Is that right? Yeah. So when 
Tell me, try to make this a, a long story instead of a short one. No, um, go, go long. We're on a podcast. Go long. Right. Go long. So, so my father was a commercial artist. He worked in advertising. Okay. And so in the 50s and early 60s, all the ads for cars that you saw in a Life or Look or Saturday Night Post magazine in the, in the U.S. were illustrations. Uh-huh. And so he drew those cars. So suddenly I'm, I'm in Mad Men territory now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so okay. then photography, as the 60s progressed, killed what he did. I mean, he was good at something nobody wanted anymore. So mm-hmm. my parents thought, let's have a career change, and they bought a kind of fishing camp, a resort where people brought their, well, you call them caravans, I call them trailers, brought their trailers, and then we had cottages for rent, and they bought this resort business when I was 11. Uh-huh. And... When I was when I about when I turned sixteen, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer, and he passed away when I was sixteen. And I have essentially took over running the family business. My mom managed it, of course; she ran it, but I did all the I did all the work. Wow! I did everything. So I kind of grew up overnight at sixteen, and I ran this place, which I suppose you know, looking back, was in some ways an interesting thing for me because I was exposed to uh, interacted with this fascinating cast of characters of people who came it was no it was kind of like running faulty towers with caravans you know what i mean it was <laughs> all these oddball interesting characters who came back every year and and uh, and some of them were very funny some of them were wonderful to me because particularly some of the the older men who came to the camp who took me under their wing after my dad died and taught me how to fix broken pipes and how to fix this and how to do that yeah, yeah, yeah. so that was that was my uh, that was that upbringing. It was a bit different. Wow. Well, I lo- so I love the idea that you are seeing all these different people passing passing you by as you're working at this place. So part of you, do you, I mean, do you still draw on them? Do you ever sort of go to that cast of characters in your head? For I, your have, I have. I have. Well, I did a couple of books for young adult, young readers a couple of years ago, Chase and Escape. And Chase is, uh, much of it is set at a place that's identical where I grew up as a kid. Uh, tell us about those books, please. So they're for teenagers or for younger well, than that? Well, they call for middle grade. I guess they're sort of 8 to 13, although I've heard from lots of people who read my adult books who love them. But I did write a couple of... One was called Chase, you know, and the sequel was called Escape. It basically encompasses one story. Mm-hmm. And that was a story about um, a, a dog yes. uh, named Chipper who was part of a secret organization's experiment. He was all loaded with software so that he could be used for intelligence work. Amazing, and but he's not working out because he'd still rather chase a squirrel than than chase you know than follow somebody. So he escapes from this institute and goes hunting for a particular boy, and we don't know why. Right, right, right. And this boy is at this camp after his own both of his parents have died, and is living with his aunt, and is being made to do all of this work, including the stuff that I used to do, which included probably my most in, uh, uh, entertaining job. When I worked at this camp, was um, when the fishermen would come in with their catch, they would clean all of their fish and the stuff that they did not want—the heads and the guts and mm-hmm. stuff—they dumped in a can and a garbage can, and I had to take that can out into the woods well, every day and bury it. Well, like I had a big pit that I would take the fish guts in and dump in there, and I did this every day, and then put lye in the can and bring it back. That was one of my jobs, and I don't know if there's. <laughs> Sometimes I think there may be some sort of metaphorical comparisons to writing, but <laughs> but uh, but it's one of those sort of things where you think it just doesn't get any worse. You know, you know. One time I was carrying this bucket of fish guts to the woods, and as I on route as I was going along the laneway, the bottom of the can gave way. Oh, please! And all of the guts <laughs> fell out onto the road, and you think it couldn't get worse. And then my dog ran over it and rolled in it. <laughs> 
They will always do that. Dogs will always they find just, a way to make like, things worse. You know, worse. really? Like, it just wasn't bad enough that I got to clean this up. Now I got to clean the dog, oh, too. Oh, man. What did you do with the fish guts? I just saw you just kind of just kick them into the side of the oh, road. Oh, if only I could. But it was right in front of where we live. It could, they, you get a bit, you know, odiferous. <laughs> so so I, had, I had to deal with that. I had to get another can, load them up. It's just... It was a long wow. time. It was a long time. I still wake up screaming in the night sometimes. <laughs> the that. fish guts, the silence of the fish guts. That's right. Exactly. Coming soon. Does it, uh, when you're writing books for kids, is it a different process? Do you enjoy it more, perhaps? Uh, well, I just did the two, and I found that doing, because I write on an adult thriller for adults every year. Mm. And I'm also starting to dabble, getting involved somewhere in writing screenplays and so forth. And I found that it was, I just didn't have enough time in, in the year to do all of it. So yeah. I did the two. What was different was, it really wasn't, the process wasn't that much different. I mean, you you still want the story to have a real sense of momentum. You want lots of cliffhangers. You want lots of twists. So all the things that you would expect, I would hope to find in one of my adult thrillers, I put into the kids' ones. I just had to use less, fewer swear words. Yeah. That was a challenge. I mean, preferably zero. That's yeah, it was hard. Ideally. Every once in a while, one would go in and, oh, can't do that. <laughs> Come on, can I get one in, please? Yeah, no, yeah, we're in. Um, so, because, of course, because, of course, young kids of that age have never heard those words. No, exactly. You certainly wouldn't want to expose them to those. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Where did you get that, where did you oh, get that word oh, from? Linwood oh, Barkley, Daddy. Linwood Barkley. The shock and the horror that <laughs> this word was discovered. I must admit, one of the thing, greatest thing credits I must give to my dad, because I'm a massive... Um, you know, I read all the time. And uh, it was give, letting me read a Stephen King book when I was about 11. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was, he really shouldn't have done. And he was a very conservative uh, kind one, of guy. Which one was it? Do you remember? Needful Things. Oh, yeah, okay. That's yeah, big, it big. So I got on holiday book, yeah. and he, he bought it for me. And it was full of swear words. I was 11 years old. I read every, literally every single swear word. And loads of sex in it as well. But that was it. I was hooked on books then. He knew what oh, he was yeah. doing. Well, I think that my my mum was concerned about what I would read. She didn't think you know certain things would be appropriate. My dad didn't care. Yeah. And if, and if I was out with my dad when I was a kid, and if I wanted a book, I mean, he would always first say jokingly, he said, "Well, you already have a book." But then he would weaken and <laughs> such he, a dad joke. That's no, such no, a dad totally joke. Totally bad joke. And, and but he would always get me a book, and I and he didn't. It didn't bother him. He just thought, if you want to read that, read that. Yes. Yes. And I and I also think too that certainly more even of my generation than yours because you look about. 60 years younger than I do. But anyway, I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, you know, I, when I was growing up, I, there weren't really that much in the way of, you know, young adult books and so forth. Mm. There, we, we had our Hardy Boys mysteries and so forth. But I mean, I think I was reading, I think I read The Godfather when I was 14. Yeah. I learned a lot. That's good that. stuff. I really learned a lot <laughs> in that one. Sonny and the Bridesmaid. Man, that, I just, if you just, the book would just fall open to that page. Oops. But you wouldn't get, uh, you would, there wouldn't be a little 18 certificate on books then. There still aren't, no. So you, no. Yeah, kids can still get hold of them in that way. But I think, I really think that when I was growing up, you just read what everybody else read. So yeah. you, whatever your parents were reading, whether if it looked interesting, then you yeah. just read that. So a bit of screenplay action going on at the moment. How are you finding that compared to writing novels? Well, the actual writing of screenplays, I love. Like, you write great dialogue anyway. Your dialogue's brilliant. Well, so thank that's... you. Thank you. It, and the thing is, when you're writing a screenplay, it's just what what's happening and what people say. Mm -hmm. So there's not pages of backstory. There's not pages and pages of, of inner monologue of what the character's thinking. It's just, it's distilling something to its essence, which I really like. Yeah. So the actual writing of them, I think, is great fun. Um, and it doesn't take nearly as long. Like, it takes me th you know, three months to write a book, and I've done... You know, I've been able to write a script in nine days or whatever. So, I love that. If you're Pablo, if, if you're the people employing you to do that are listening now, going, "Hang on, took him nine days." It's what? How you know these things shouldn't have to take that long? 
It's easy. It's easy. But but the, what's different though is that when you write a novel, you're working primarily with you know an editor, mm-hmm. and so the editor makes some judgments and suggestions, and you go back at it and you work on it a bit. When you're doing editing for TV or for movies, there's so many people who weigh in with an opinion, and at different levels. I mean, you're the first wave of producers are now happy with it, and then they give it to a network. And then the network says, well, I think it needs this, and then it comes back, and then you fix it again, and it just goes on and on. It's a wonder anything gets made in the face of that. That is exactly what the agent who represents me said. It's a miracle that anything gets made. Yeah. Because it's not just all of that process. It's like there are so many moving parts to any production. Like, can we get this director? Can we get this actor? Can of we course. get this great? All yeah. of these things have to happen. Mm. And so... And so, I mean, I think I've written far more stuff, you know, with the hope that it will be made than it actually has been made. Mm. You know, we did in Canada, we had, uh, I wrote an adaptation for my book, Never Saw It Coming, and it got made in Canada, and it's on a streaming service there. Eric Roberts is in it, and uh, a wonderful actress named Emily Hampshire. And, but so far we haven't got out of there. And they made a six-part series out of one of my books in France, which I had nothing to do with, but... Uh, they did a beautiful job on it called the it's the accident. They did oh, yeah. that, and I've been now been most recently involved in. I wrote what I call my Promise False trilogy, which was three no, um, broken promise, far from true, and the twenty three. Yeah, and that's that's in development, and I've written the pilot uh, episode and so forth. But and that's to be a TV series. Yeah, that would be intended for TV. We'll see what happens. But you know, when you have a when you get a book contract, the book comes out. Yeah, but when you get contracts to write. Stuff for TV, you just never know. No. You've got to go out into a, a blizzard of opinions. That's the terrifying thing. Yeah, it really, it is. It's just so everybody weighs in. And yeah. it, well, the part that really upset me the most was I one time got like a four-page, single-spaced memo of all the things that this this first draft needed. And I just sort of grumbled and, you know, like, I don't, you know, I didn't want to do it. And so then finally after I was kicked can around for about two days, I sat down to do it, and I started incorporating some of the things that they wanted, and then I thought, to my horror, I discovered it was getting better. Oh, no. They weren't right, were they? They turned out they were right. That was so maddening. I I hate it when other people are right. I know, I was writing on that, oh, God, this is getting better. (laughs) That was really dispiriting. That's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous precedent. Um, So you are based in Canada, of course. You live over in Toronto, right? I live in Toronto, yeah. Um, how do you find it being in the UK? you enjoying being in the UK? Oh, yeah, I love it. I've been over here quite a bit. This is actually the third time within the last... 12 months that I've been over here. Okay. I love coming over here. It's yeah. great. It's, you know, as soon as I get back from here, I'm doing a U.S. tour. And U.S. tours are so much more grueling because the distances that you travel from day to day are so huge. Yeah. Whereas here, you know, it's a two-hour train ride or it's a one-hour flight or whatever, and, or it's a car ride. and mm-hmm. So it's great. Yeah. I love that. But the U.S. ones are tougher. And what do you love about the U.K., apart from the fact that it's efficiently, sort of all the cities are nicely clumped together? Well, you know what? I think part of it's it's... I think I've just made a lot of friends here. I mean, I've been coming over here to, for book events and so forth for over the last decade. Mm-hmm. And when I come here, I just end up seeing so many people that I know who I've become friends with, and it's just re- reacquainting with people. I think that's what I like the most. Brilliant stuff. Well, you're always welcome back here at Magic Towers. Linwood, what a pleasure Thank to you. meet you. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh, the fabulous Elevator Pitch is out now. Uh, make sure you read it. It's thrilling. It's a, it, You'll read it in no time as well. <laughs> if you're anything like me, you'll get it done in three days just to find out what on earth happens. Uh, Linwood, thanks so much for coming to uh, join it, us. On the it, was, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.